Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people in politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with City Hall reporters Dominic Fracasa and Trisha Thadani. We're talking about the big stories at City Hall in 2019 and what to look for in 2020. Hint, the homeless crisis makes both lists. Trisha Thadani and Dominic Fracasa, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having us. Always good to be here. (laughs) So we're going to talk today about uh, 2019 at City Hall. What were the big stories? Of course, the number one concern for many San Franciscans is the homeless crisis, and it got even worse this year. Dominic, um, what happened numbers-wise? And tell us about this crisis. Yeah. So this was back in the spring where um, the city uh, released the results of a homeless count, uh, a count of uh, basically unsheltered people. Um, There's always a little bit of criticism about the count because like homelessness is kind of actually a broader term that people see homelessness and it's a very visible thing when people are living on the street. But the other side of it are people who are living, you know, in cars who are difficult to count or people who are couch surfing and difficult to count. So you have to kind of take the report with a grain of salt. But this does provide a very important window into what's happening, not just in San Francisco, in the Bay Area when it comes to homelessness. So, you know, despite the fact that San Francisco alone spends about $300 million a year, um, both uh, housing people in permanent supportive housing complexes and operating shelters or paying for shelters, at least to operate, uh, San Francisco saw a 17% increase in the number of unsheltered people uh, who were essentially sleeping, sleeping on San Francisco's streets. The city, at, when this came out, I mean, obviously it's not a good look, but I think if you'll recall, it was just sort of bewildering to, that, you know, politicians were really trying to spin this into, we were the least worst in the region. <laughs> I mean, we saw- That was the mayor's actual response. We weren't as bad as other counties in California. Yeah, Alameda <laughs> County was was terrible. I think upwards of 40%. Mm-hmm. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but- Yeah. So, I mean, this is just yet again, uh, you know, the constraints of our housing situation in the Bay Area, the lack of resources available, the situation just continues to get worse. And unfortunately, that that bore out in the numbers this year. Yeah. And and like you had mentioned earlier, like there's so many different types of homelessness and a big um, reason behind that increase was the increase of the dramatic increase of people living out of their cars. Correct. Mm -hmm. It was something like 40, 45 percent increase of people living in RVs alone. Right. Yeah. The total number, by the way, just looking it up, uh, 8,011 oh people counted in this one one night count, a 17% increase from two years prior. And actually, if you look at how they used to measure versus now, um, we discovered uh, our colleague Kevin Fagan did an interesting story about how if you uh, measured it the same way that they did two years ago, it was actually a 30% increase because right. this year they decided to not count those in jail and hospitals and residential facilities yeah. who it's not like they're they're housed <laughs> yeah, so exactly right. um that was a 30 percent spike if you look at it from the same way they used to count 
So there's been a big fight um, about navigation centers. And Tricia, you've been covering um, the drive to open navigation centers all over the city. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that and um, particularly mm-hmm. this very controversial one on the Embarcadero? Yeah. So back in March, I believe, Dom broke the initial story that Mayor Breed wanted to propose a navigation center on the Embarcadero. Um, and it was going to be the biggest navigation center that the city has had. Um And there's going to be about 200 beds. And obviously, given those numbers that we just saw, this was incredibly important. Um, It is it borders um, neighborhoods Rincon Hill and Mm -hmm. South Beach. South Beach. Yeah. Um, So that set off and, you know, that really incensed. Major lawsuit. (laughs) Um, Really angered a lot of neighbors who said, um, we don't want this coming to our backyard, which Mm -hmm. is a common sentiment that you sometimes that you hear in the city. Um, So despite the fact that there is a very visible homeless population on the waterfront, they argued, you know, if you bring this here, we're going to see even more homeless people rather than the city's argument where, you know, there are already homeless people here, might as well give Mm -hmm. them somewhere to stay. Um, So, yeah, that set off, um, you know, tens of thousands of dollars were uh, raised by this um, by this group, which was called Safe Embarcadero, um, when the port had um, approved this uh, the navigation center being built on this property, then uh, there was you know went to the board and then there was a lawsuit and it was just a huge mess. They ultimately mm-hmm. the city didn't prevailed. Succeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you just toured this site. It's about to open. Yes. What did you see there? So I just uh, went to the press tour of it today, and it's it's quite nice. Um, you know, navigation centers by the by nature, I think like the city wants them to be like a very pleasant environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so the press conference was held in this, um, in like the courtyard where there was like nice trees and like a seating area. Um, and you know, you go inside and it was really cold. It's really cold out today and you go inside and it's very warm and, you know, it's a very pleasant, like calming environment. Mm -hmm. Um, so it also came on the same day that supervisor Matt Haney, um, he plans at the board meeting to introduce an ordinance to, um, compel, um, or to encourage his colleagues to open up a navigation center in every single district. Um, now we'll see how realistic that is. But his his point was basically like we dish his district, District Six, shoulders too much of the burden um, of the city's homelessness services. Other people need to step up. I thought yeah. it was kind of amusing that the safe Embarcadero folks who didn't want a navigation center near them um, kept saying, we already have enough in District 6. The Tenderloin has everything. And I'm like, you're very far from the yeah, Tenderloin. Yeah. There was suddenly this big camaraderie ship between South <laughs> yeah. Beach and, and the Tenderloin <laughs> that hadn't really existed before as far as I know. Yeah, and there, that was a disparity. But, I mean, Supervisor Haney weathered a lot of, of intense backlash mm-hmm. shortly after being elected, you know, right. about this in his support of it, which has not wavered. Um, he, you know, and the mayor have sort of, you know, tried to placate the people who are worried about the Navigation Center by stepping up security and by, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to take steps to ensure that it will be maintained and clean and safe. And I think what has happened is this is going to become the most closely watched, you know, highly secure, you know, facility. I think the city needs to keep it that way because this whole region has become incredibly sensitive for Mayor Mayor Breed politically. They cannot have anything make the headlines in a negative way at that Mm -hmm. site. And God knows we'll be watching. So, yeah. 
Uh, relatedly, um, there was a story that got a lot of attention uh, near there when a mentally ill man um, attacked a woman outside her Embarcadero condo saying that he was trying to save her from robots. That was a big argument that safe Embarcadero folks used in terms of trying to block this nav center. Um, and mental health in general became a huge story, especially for you, Tricia. So mm-hmm. can you talk about what you've learned covering that this year about this huge problem um, facing San Francisco. Yeah, and it, I feel like it's increasingly become where city officials don't talk about homelessness without talking about the issue of mental illness as well. Um, so this became a huge issue at the Board of Supervisors this year when uh, that Dom and I both covered when Supervisor uh, Hillary Ronan and Matt Haney, they had proposed this idea called Mental Health SF, where they were like, enough with these, you know, quote unquote, incremental changes that are coming from uh, the Breed administration. We need to overhaul the entire system. Um, DPH doesn't have the will to change anything. So we're going to come in and just, you know, start start from scratch. Um, and there a huge a fight, I guess, had ensued between Breed and, and the supervisors because the supervisors wanted to bring it to the ballot. Um, Breed didn't want to go didn't want it to go to the ballot. Um, you know, there were some estimates that it would cost like millions and millions of dollars. And um yeah, so eventually after months of them going back and forth, they'd come um, to this agreement that they would work on this together. They had both made uh, different concessions with um, each other. So, you know, in the coming year, we'll see how this plays out. But essentially, the um, you know, the, the crux of this is to increase more services, um, take a look at the services that we currently have and see what's what's not working, because mm-hmm. something is clearly not working. <laughs> yeah, it sort of starts, I think, the whole atomic unit of this conversation in San Francisco about untreated mental illness is mm-hmm. the fact that it is so visible mm-hmm. and that, you know, anyone you know has had an experience of, you know, whether it's a, you know, harrowing experience of somebody who is, you know, obviously in distress and acting out like the poor woman, Panis Kasarian, she was, yeah, she was attacked outside a condo building that was, you know, full up, well, okay, I'm exaggerating, but that that was a sort of a, a nucleus for the opposition to that navigation mm-hmm. center. And that whole incident really became a lightning rod for like, this is people saying, this is why we feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. This is what we worry about. This is is the kind of stuff that's happened to us. It just happened to be caught on videotape this time. And that really was a lightning rod, I think, for the conversation around that. Um, I think, though, that, you know, what, 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 so what do we have right now? We have Mental Health SF, mm-hmm. which is a blueprint, right? Mm-hmm. So just a week ago, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors passed it into law, saying this shall be the law of the land. But that doesn't, that's sort of like saying, you know, it's the first step of a very, very long journey that's going to be fraught with a lot more fights in 2019 and beyond into how to implement it, right? right? So what we have is a skeleton, and we're going to have to put all of the musculature around it to actually make it into a functioning, living, breathing program, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, I, I'm very cautious, and everyone should be very skeptical to say, hey, we passed mental health SF. Like, you should treat that as like the entree into a very, very much larger, much more expensive conversation, right. but one that we obviously need to have. I mean, the one thing about all the fighting that went on that you described, Tricia, was basically the fact that our politicians were fighting over how to fix it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it everybody wasn't, agrees. Everyone broken. agrees. It yeah. wasn't like let's do it or not. It was we have to do it, but who gets to take credit and who mm-hmm. you know gets to lead things? And mm-hmm. so I think we're going to see a lot of that friction still occur. Yeah. But at least you know, at least we're behind a single program now, right. and 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 they share a unified goal. Mm-hmm. And the mayor appointed a, an expert on mental health, Dr. Anton Bland, to study this problem. And he found 4,000 people experiencing homelessness, drug addiction, and mental health issues in San Francisco, which kind of shows how huge this problem mm-hmm. is. Right. Yeah. 
And and of that population, they've identified 250 that they are supposed to be helping as soon as possible to get into services, which is something we'll definitely have to check on soon to see mm-hmm. the progress of that. And uh, relatedly, drug overdoses have spiked in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And um, one big answer, safe injection sites still haven't gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote about the mayor deciding not to move forward with a plan to open up kind of a pop-up safe injection center on wheels uh, while President Trump is in office because she doesn't want to face the blowback on that. So there aren't any huge answers for the drug addiction crisis at the moment. No, it doesn't seem like San Francisco is going to be the first or I, I don't know. I don't know where other cities, cities like, you know, you hear about, I think, Philadelphia and, and Seattle mm-hmm. have, have toyed with this idea. There was a court ruling, um, I think, actually out of a Philadelphia federal court that uh, uh, sort of gave a little bit of an entree or a mm-hmm. little bit of hope that, in fact, some interpretations of federal law, because this isn't meant to encourage people to do drugs, it's just meant to give them a safe space. And in fact, one way for clinicians to interface with addicts to say, please stop doing drugs, mm-hmm. please mm-hmm. come into these services, please let us help you. And so depending mm-hmm. on how you sort of Slice and dice the law. There may have been some hope, but I, I think I don't think there's any chance that any of these get open in the United States yeah. with a with a federal administration who's so clearly against it. Yeah, um, and and a pretty heartbreaking like result of not having a safe injection site. I'd observed um, when I was working in a story uh, a few weeks ago on this alleyway mm-hmm. in the Tenderloin called Willow Street, where a lot of drug users come because they know you know, this is a safe place for them to use. And if they do end up overdosing, there will be people around them. Um, so, you know, there is obviously the sense that as the drugs in the street become, you know, more pernicious and, you know, you have fentanyl and they're more dangerous um, and overdoses are more likely, you need to be using in a safer mm-hmm. place. And so there were some there were some people who I spoke to on that street who one woman, she had used Narcan like 22 times on wow. someone. So, you know, absent a actual place like this, like these communities are going to keep popping up. Just their unsafe injections. Right. <laughs> we, we did just just one thing about drug use. We did, you know, have um, the mayor come out and say like in a matter of six months, which will, should be, I think, early 2020 about a meth sobering right. center. Mm. So meth one, has been a huge problem this year. In one of absolutely the, the usage. It's always hard to track how many people use illicit drugs, mm-hmm. but the usage certainly seems to go up and the effects are, you know, when you see someone slumped over or talking to themselves, there is a chance that they may have a mental illness, but that's quite possibly and statistics bear out that it's almost likely that that person has been exact their situation's been exacerbated by meth use mm-hmm. right so we might uh, in a couple of months here see a sobering center open up where people who are essentially crashing on meth uh, you know after days a uh, day day long run days long run of using can come and have a safe place to go and again be swarmed to the idea is by clinicians and by you know caseworkers who can try to help them steer them in the right direction mm-hmm. but as i say this you know it gets back to the homelessness problem and the lack of shelter space that we have all of these things are connected, mm-hmm. right? Like, we, we, where is that person going to go if they're willing to accept services? Right. If it's not really acceptable to say, "Well, please come back in three weeks and make an appointment," and you know, make sure you have your phone on you. Maybe that person has a phone. Maybe they don't. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that. That just kind of shows you that this whole web of of, of San Francisco's problems are interconnected and largely around spaces mm-hmm. for people to be and live inside. Right. 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 
Changing gears, um, election night in November was pretty significant. So Mayor London Breed won her first full term with hardly any competition. So um, she will have that to look forward to. But otherwise, she had a pretty bad night. Um, Trisha, can you lay out what happened to the Board of Supervisors? Yes. So um, Mayor Breed, when she uh, ascended to the mayor's office, her District 5 seat on the Board of Supervisors was vacant. So she had appointed um, a longtime neighborhood activist, Valley Brown. Um, who was generally seen as one of her like few allies on this very progressive board of supervisors. And now Supervisor Brown wouldn't always side with Breed, but she was seen as someone who was more amenable to, you know, being on her side with certain things. Um, and but basically, as soon as Valley Brown was appointed, Dean Preston, um, who had run against uh, Mayor Breed in 2016, had pulled papers to run. And he ran a very, very aggressive campaign. Um, he was, you know, went into it, was like determined to win against um, against Breed's appointee. And a major point of his campaign was, you know, we should have someone on the board who is independent from the mayor. So he's seen as very like adversarial toward her. He's a democratic socialist. He's right? a democratic socialist. He ran far, far to the left. Mm -hmm. um, he supports things like free muni, 100 percent affordable housing, um, et cetera. So he um, he ended up barely squeaking out a victory. I believe that in the end it was like some it took several days to yeah count. yeah it was some like two hundred votes. So now um, you know instead of having um, an ally on the board, she mm -hmm. is a someone who is very clearly um, a bit of a foe mm -hmm. to her. I'd say mm -hmm. so. Not a great mm -hmm. night for her. So <laughs> she really doesn't even have a veto proof. Uh, the board has a veto proof majority oh, yeah. now, so she can't Definitely. even veto with any effectiveness. Yeah, right. And then also on the November ballot was the district attorney's election, which um, was supposed to be the first wide open uh, DA race in more than 100 years. But at the last minute, that changed. Dom, what yeah. happened? Yeah, it's, I think it's always important to note and what can easily be you know, forgotten about this conversation is that all of this dust up over, you know, the district attorney election, you know, had to do with the fact that our former DA, George Gascoigne, said, yeah, I've got to leave right now <laughs> to go run for I DA. I want this and, job in L.A. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm leaving to go to L.A. I think it was October, early October, early to mid-October is when he said, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving before my term would be out. And so that left a vacancy that the mayor is uh, legally allowed to fill, and she filled it with the person that she endorsed over a year ago, which is Susie Loftus, who is still technically our interim DA mm. for a few more days, I suppose. Um, and really the reaction to that among political insiders and I think people who are simply just watch not not, you know, and I envy them not sort of swamped in this stuff day in and day out. You know, they, I you just, don't like the minutia of election. Quite, quite the opposite. I do. I do. But sometimes I, I, this I is the wrong job. I wonder, I wonder if the grass is greener sometimes. That's all. I, I guess what. They looked at when they saw the appointment of the mayor's preferred candidate was a tipping of the scales in favor of Susie Loftus. Mm -hmm. And I think that people who were primed to oppose Susie and to oppose the mayor were going to you know, react the way they did. And that's predictable. But I think there was a wider sort of sense of of outrage really mm -hmm. about it. And it really it looks in retrospect like a very bad political move by the mayor. People wondered, well, why not just appoint a, a neutral party? Why not appoint George Gascon's chief of staff who mm -hmm. was still there and who was completely capable of running the office? And her response was, I don't like anybody really into the George Gascon administration. I don't trust them. I trust Susie can do the job. But it and was I'm just for two weeks. She could have waited to right. November 5th and appoint, immediately appointed whoever won. So, of course, Chesa Boudin, uh, who, again, it was a big night for progressives this November. He uh, is running as, as uh, uh, several you know, major DA uh, district attorneys across the country have run on a 
a sort of ticket or a platform of you know reducing mass incarceration, looking at the uh, charging of crimes through a very um, finely honed racial lens mm-hmm. and understanding ending it. bail. Yep, ending cash bail and and just trying to you know enact reforms as a progressive prosecutor, and that's what he's going to be tasked with doing. That's what mm-hmm. he set himself up as, um, and so he will be. There was a funny thing that people forget about where he and actually Leaf Dotch, uh, number the fourth place um, uh, sort of runner up in the DA's race. After the Loftus thing happened and everybody got so upset, they said, look, as soon as the DA is the DA's race is called, you should appoint the winner. Loftus should step aside and mm-hmm. you should appoint the winner and be done with this, you know, terrible tipping of the scales and this uh, uh, this outcome that we didn't like. And then after the election, uh, Chester Boudin says, actually, I'd like to get married. <laughs> I'd like to have a couple of months. I'd like to take some time. So we're going to forget all about that. Yeah. So I think that's just more of a humorous aside. I think there yeah. was a lot of bluster to begin with. But, you know, it's just it's just kind of uh, one of the more amusing things that kind of got lost in the shuffle. Has there been, I mean, do we know how much um, Breed's appointment of Loftus might have influenced the outcome of the election? I haven't personally seen data suggesting that or, or exit polls that yeah. had that as a question. They may well exist. Um, that's more just, you know, me taking the temperature and talking to a bunch of people about it. And even the mayor's supporters saying, yeah, I wish I hadn't hadn't done it mm. quite that way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she, she's she's that's what she does, though. She's going to appoint her people that, that we've seen that in in smaller scale appointments, whether I mean, it's very rent board. I'm not trying to diminish the importance of the rent board, for example. But, you know, she's she's like, look, I don't need to talk to the tenants union to mm-hmm. pick my person. I'm going to pick my person. I mean, mm-hmm. that is just sort of a, a theme. And, and she's completely within her legal right to do it. But You know, she's just not winning many friends that way. Mm. I'm Heather Knight, and we'll be right back after this. I'm back with City Hall reporters Trisha Thadani and Dominic Fracasa. Chase Bodine, of course, comes out of the public defender's office, which segues into another huge story, which now seems like a million years ago. In February, public defender Jeff Adachi unexpectedly died. Um, There was some... How would you say? <laughs> what were the circumstances behind that? I'm not going to answer this. Dumb. Yeah, yeah, very you good. do it. Yeah, that's, yeah, no. uh, so, yeah. So Jeff Adachi died of basically having a terribly weak heart that was exacerbated by what, you know, a toxicology reported as some minor drug use. This is the official San Francisco uh, medical examiner's report. Um, you know, he was out at dinner with a woman who was not his wife. And what, what happened was not really the, 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 the news of his death was shattering. The public defender's office, mm-hmm. he was, you know, I mean, he really commanded. And I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but he had a, a cult of personality, right, mm-hmm. that he lo- worked very hard to maintain. Whether you agreed with him politically or not, he was very beloved, very he, charismatic. He was all over the city. Everybody knew him. And, and he built the public defender's office into something that I think in his words was going to rival the DA's office to give the poor and indigent a chance at a legal a legal fight when their rights were were at issue, right? Mm-hmm. When when they were accused of crimes. And that's really what he did and built it into a sterling public defender's office that is really... That often trounced the district attorney's yeah, office. Yeah, exactly. And that's the envy, you know, certainly across the state, if not, if not the country. So when he died, that was a huge... He was a major political force in San Francisco and, and we lost that. But what happened was... Crime, nah, there's not a crime. Let me take that back entirely. The, the the photographs of the sort of apartment where he was with this other woman got leaked to the press. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, seemed to show, they showed a disheveled, I think, leopard print bed and marijuana gummies and and sort of this lurid, this collection. there were some empty liquor bottles. Liquor mm-hmm. bottles. Um, 
and say it sounds like my it could be my place. You know, <laughs> oh no, really? No, no, Let's no, no. It could send be this podcast in. Let's link it to the press. <laughs> no. It could. It, it, it just the the body of evidence that was released to the press seemed to show some kind of lurid activity. And Jeff Adachi, the public defender, the sort of you know mad dog of the public defender's office, was hated by many people at the police department. They're obvious adversaries, right? We don't have to get into the reasons why. They're mm-hmm. they're obviously in conflict. So what happened was it turns out that a journalist, a stringer uh, by the name of Brian Carmody, had accessed, somehow got, you know, the this evidence, leaked it to the press or sold it to other media outlets. The Chronicle was aware of this evidence but did not pay for anything. That's a disclaimer that's been in just about every story about <laughs> this whole saga. Uh, and and really, it would seem like a way to bash Adachi after he was dead, to, mm-hmm. to, to impugn his character after he had already died, and people were incensed about that. There was a lot of love him or hate him about Jeff Adachi, but it really was sort of universally, uh, um, it, it gave a lot of his supporters um, major cause for outrage, and they mm-hmm. wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so all of this capitulated in the San Francisco Police Department breaking down Brian Carmody's door, as we have seen on videotape. With a sledgehammer. With a sledgehammer, infamously. And and demanding this evidence, demanding, I think, you know, collect surveillance equipment and demanding his you Holding know, laptops, him for hours. Interrogating him for hours. And it really ended up being a major trampling on, of press freedom. Mm-hmm. And, it was a very bad look in so-called mm-hmm. progressive San Francisco. And I think what it really exposed was a lack of understanding about why it was so important. Because yeah. people saw Brian Carmody as a scumbag. They're mm-hmm. like, this guy sold you know, evidence sold, you know, uh, source materials to the press. He made money off of it. And it made Jeff Adachi, someone, you know, we love in terms of his supporters, made him look very bad. Mm -hmm. And so it just sort of like, well, wait a second, regardless of who this person is, regardless of what you think about it, this was someone who was doing journalistic work and was had the police knock on his door as a result of it. And I just don't think that was conveyed in stark enough terms because we had supervisors. We had the mayor. The mayor backed it. Get to the bottom of it, folks. Figure it out. Fewer said something like the press should report things that aren't like publicly made available to them or, or some, it, something it, it were co- it like was a that. comment in an overall sort of miasma of of opinion that said reporters shouldn't do work this way and yeah. and what that work that way is very common mm-hmm. like we, you know I, I some I forget who said it well you know uh, one of the water watergate guys where it's like you know news is what people don't want to know about mm-hmm. you know what don't want you to know about the rest is all you know pr materials right. which you know what i mean it's like look we we have this is our job to uncover what's actually going on mm-hmm. here and you know i think the tactics are suspect you know i think we have to be extremely circumspect about you know publishing these things why are we publishing it mm-hmm. what is the public you know good or public information that's being conveyed but man that was a mess for months months and months and it does feel and like a lifetime several ago. superior court judges authorized the raid right police chief mm-hmm. like backed it three times in yeah. public state the mayor backed it. It's just a complete lack of understanding yeah, across the, the board. The police chief backed it up until he had to issue a mea culpa saying like, yeah, actually, this was all a terrible set of decisions. Like it was just a mess for the police chief. It was a mess for his police department. Mm-hmm. And and really, um, I think it, it made cops look look bad. And and the rest of the department really didn't agree with the way the chief handled that. So that was a bit of a, a bit of a sort of, a, you know, a smudge on, on his mm-hmm. reputation. And because of how complicated it was, you know, it sort of obscures really what happened unless, you know, our, our reporter, our colleague, Evan Cernofsky, followed this to the T, mm-hmm. you know, and, and unless you kind of go back and look at the whole body of work, it's hard to understand what a, what a crazy situation that was. But, you know, it, 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 we don't take uh, uh, trampling of press freedoms lightly. We really, Especially with a sledgehammer. Yeah, especially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lastly, wanted to touch on uh, the vote to shut down Juvenile Hall here at the Chronicle 
our colleagues Jill Tucker and Joaquin Palomino did great work um, showing that many juvenile halls around California are nearly empty because juvenile crime has dropped so much. And so we're paying huge amounts to keep these old school facilities open that aren't even really doing much anymore. And so um, the board took that up. So, Dom, can you tell us what uh, the results were at City Hall? Yeah. So I, this is one of those things where I think we need to watch very closely what happens in the in the coming year. So what, what we know is that the Board of Supervisors voted uh, 10 to 1 back in uh, July, actually, to close San Francisco's you know juvenile justice hall. And for the, all the reasons you said, we are incarcerating uh, kids, children, for sometimes suspect reasons. And we're spending a lot of money to incarcerate kids when other solutions seem viable and worth trying, mm-hmm. right, in this gigantic building. So, you know, there's we don't know how that's going to be done yet. We don't know what's going to happen to that large, large building um, near Laguna Honda, I think. I forget what street mm-hmm. it's on. It's it's really, I mean, what we're seeing, and again, it, it sort of mirrors this statewide trend of like we're seeing less and less juvenile, you know, the need to detain kids like this just surely by the numbers, right? And so it doesn't make sense to spend all of this money to try to do it. But again, Maryland and Breed is not going to support this. What we have right now is a task force. We have a task force that's set to decide we have a lot how of we're going to. We have a lot of tasks for task, task forces, task forces. <laughs> task forces in this city, and this is just another another one of them. But yeah, all, all credit really goes to our colleagues who spent a lot of meticulous time researching this and trying to understand why. So I think this, this is one, this is one, another area where the board and the mayor just don't see eye right. to eye. The NAACP doesn't support this as well. Mm-hmm. And she, and uh, that organization and the mayor are you know pretty closely linked. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of voice here around because there is another equity lens to this as well, right? Especially when it comes to jailing bra- black and brown kids, the uh, Amos Brown of the NAACP, Reverend Brown, you know, says that, you know, this is a way for kids to uh, uh, sort of rehabilitate themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is an important institution that we need to preserve you know, and you know, Shimon Walton, you know, our, our yeah. only black supervisor is like, this is appalling and this is not the way that kids, you know, can be put on the right track. Right. And so these are the kind of, this is a very ideological disagreement. It really mm-hmm. speaks to the heart of how we think the, you know, the carceral, you know, sort of solutions should work or not work. Mm-hmm. And and I think, and frankly, just going back to Chesa Boudin, I think he's going to have a lot to say about this, right? Yeah. I mean, I think his, his sort of role in it is going to be, it played no small part in it, given sort of what his background is, what his platform is. So right. this is one of the, the big issues we're going to watch, mm-hmm. whatever the hell this task force decides yeah, to do. Right. And, and like you had said, I mean, the headlines say like, soups vote to shut down mm-hmm. juvenile hall. But in reality, like down. you said, yeah, yeah it's going to be a long, long fight. So as we quickly get out our crystal balls for mm-hmm. 2020, um, we've already touched on some things to watch for, which is a super progressive board um, and how they get along with the mayor, mm-hmm. her drive to open more mental health beds and 1,000 shelter beds by the end of next year, um, the continued quest to build more housing construction. Um, what else do you think we need to be watching out for? I'll give each of you an opportunity. Trisha. <laughs> Thank you. So on the Board of Supervisors, um, I mean, this feels like a long ways from now, but um, in November, there's um, almost half the board will be up for re-election. So the it's odd gonna, ones. It's going to be the odd <laughs> ones. So the odd numbered districts. No, just um, the odd <laughs> Um Can we get in trouble for saying that? Nah. Um, so there'll be Supervisor uh, Sandra Lee Fewer, who's District 1. There'll be Supervisor Aaron Peskin, which is District 3. And then Dean Preston, who just ran mm-hmm. for re-election, will have to run again. Um, he already has two challengers that have um, that have said they're going to run. I don't know if they've officially filed yet. And then uh, Supervisor Norman Yee, who's currently the board president, um, he's termed out mm-hmm. and um, he is 
Does he? I don't know if anyone has. Joel filed. Lingardio is he's running. Filed. Yeah, he's run twice already for that seat, and then uh, the rumor is that City College Representative Ivy Lee will mm-hmm. run, but she, I don't think she's made that official. Uh, right. Not yet. Uh, it's widely believed that she will throw her hat in the ring. She's also uh, uh, one of Supervisor Yee's current legislative right. aides. So. Right. And then, so we'll definitely need a new board president. Yes. Yes. And. You know, going back to significant things that happened in 2019, that was also a very, very right. contentious fight on the board of supervisors. So we'll see how it plays out. Let's do again. it over again. Yes, <laughs> it was super fun to cover. Um, and then uh, Supervisor Hillary Ronan in District Nine will also have to run, and then Supervisor um, Asha Safai will also have to run in District Eleven, and he already has a challenger, former Supervisor John Avalos. People love the job; they just keep running for it. I know. <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely something to watch. So it's very possible that this time next year the Board of Supervisors could look markedly different. Mm-hmm. And Dom, what are you going to be looking for? I know it's 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 sort of um, I sound like a little a little bit like a broken record, but I think it's how the city figures out mental health SF, yeah. how it irons it out, um, how uh, how many uh, how big this small army of people is going to be that the city is going to need to hire, mm-hmm. um, how efficiently they can roll it out. I mean, time is money here, and it's more importantly, it's human suffering. Mm-hmm. And so the political fights that you know this sort of thing will inspire, if it takes too much time, I mean, I think supervisors need to feel the pressure of timing to do that because mm-hmm. it's of the essence. I think um, you mentioned getting the shelter beds built. Mayor Breed is, you know, again and again reminded us that she set this goal. So we'll be watching come 20, the end of next year, Mm -hmm. if we can get to that thousand bed uh, sort of target, which will, you know, hopefully significantly reduce the wait list, which is routinely over Mm -hmm. a thousand people long, uh, trying to get into a, a San Francisco homeless shelter. Um, and frankly, I think it is housing. You know, whether we have you know this sort of um, largely ideologically aligned board, uh, certainly around affordable housing, how quickly we can get that built, where it's going to be built, we have to figure that out. Because sort of what we have now is this sort of resistance to market rate housing, resistance to things like Senate you know, Bill Fifty, which would make it easier to build housing around transit. Uh, um, and so I think how they go about figuring that out and whether they can get into a groove and make it happen uh, not just talk about it, I think mm-hmm. is going to be really significant. So if they get it done, great. Yeah. You know. J- jumping off what you said about about the, the shelter beds and Mayor Breed's thousand um, bed goal by the end of 2020, I mean, we're in the next couple of months should have a you know, a lot more shelter beds online. So we have the Embarcadero Navigation Center where 200 people are supposed to move in over the next couple of weeks. Um, And then there's another navigation center in the Bayview that's supposed to open up um, sometime, hopefully early next year. Um, And then, you know, now Supervisor Haney has that proposal to, you know, that'll hopefully push the city to open up even more. So we're going to have all these beds. And the question is, will they actually make a difference on the streets? Yeah. And I think the last thing I'd say that the mayor knows this well, if not most or all of the Board of Supervisors, mm-hmm. is that you're not going to be able to rest there. I mean, even if we had, you know, 1,500 shelter beds open, mm-hmm. enough to, you know, bring everybody inside who wants to be inside, they're going to need to go somewhere. They're going to need to go somewhere permanently right. after that. You know, whether it's you, you stay 90 days at a shelter and then you, you're going to figure out your entire life at that point. Like, no, the people need these transitional spaces to go and be if they're going to get back on the road. And building mm-hmm. building and supporting permanent supportive housing is not easy. Right. And people don't like to talk about that. But, you know, nobody's going to be able to rest once the shelter targets are there. That's mm-hmm. a great start. Bringing people inside is, you know, the most important thing. But it's gonna. There's a lot more work to do after that. That doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to be percolating, at least not very visibly in City mm-hmm. Hall yet. As we kind of focus on nav centers and shelters. Right. Great. Well, you both have done a lot of good work this year, and I think there'll be a lot to cover in 2020. So get some rest over the holidays. <laughs> we'll <try>. We will. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks, Heather. Thanks. 
Thanks to Trisha Thadani and Dominic Fracasa for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.